The idea is not that we do work for God, but that we are so loyal to Him that He can do His work through us. And that really summarizes um, the series that we are about to launch this morning called Fun Loan. If uh, this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, my name is Randy, and we are starting a fall emphasis uh, leading up to an event called the Weekend of Service in the month of October. You'll hear more about that later. But we're going to begin our series, Life on Loan, by looking at a parable that Jesus told in Matthew's Gospel. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to be looking at the, a parable called the Parable of the Talents. Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. And uh, that's on page 702 of your church Bibles, the navy blue Bibles that are in the pouch in front of you. And uh, if you don't have a copy of the Bible as your own, please feel free to take that uh, copy that's in front of you, put your name in it, take it home, and it's yours. And I'm going to be reading Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, and that is also up on the screen as well. Jesus is the one telling the parable, and he says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then... You should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's Word. 
1859, Abraham Lincoln was in Council Bluffs, Iowa, campaigning for the presidency of the United States. He stood on a balcony at a hotel. He had some Q&A time with the audience. After the crowd dispersed, one of the organizers of the event said to Abraham Lincoln, you see that guy over there? And he pointed to a man named Dodge, Granville Dodge. He said, you see that man over there? Lincoln said, yes. He said, that man, Grenville Dodge, knows more about the building of a transcontinental railroad than any two men in the country. And Lincoln said, well, let's go talk with him. So they sat down, and Lincoln got right to the point. He sat down, and he crossed his long, lanky legs, and he tapped the Grenville Dodge on the forearm. He said, well, tell me, Dodge. What's the best route for a transcontinental railroad? And they were in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And Dodge said, well, from here, all the way across the Platte Valley, over the Rocky Mountains. And Lincoln said, really? Why do you think that? And for the next several hours, they talked about the transcontinental railroad. In 1859, Council Bluffs, Iowa. Now, let me tell you why that's such a significant story. It's significant because Lincoln, after he was elected president, he was in the midst of an unpresent, uh, an uncertain uh, present, an uncertain present. Storm clouds of succession uh, from the Union were on the horizon. Uh, uh, the Civil War was about to break out. Uh, the nation was about to be torn apart. Uh, there wasn't really sure what was going to happen to this American experiment. What does the future hold? There was, there was, there was this uncertain present that, that, that just was surfacing all across the country, especially after Lincoln was elected and the states began to pull and the Civil War began to commence. I mean, my goodness... And yet, in the midst of that uncertain present, Abraham Lincoln saw a certain future. Even though the Civil War had yet to start, it was going to happen. And after the Civil War, what was going to happen after that? And, And in the midst of this uncertain present, Lincoln was looking toward a certain future when not only would the North and South be reunited, but he wanted to find a way to bind the East and the West and thus secure the empire across the continent. That, church family, is vision. In the midst of an uncertain present, to be able to look toward a certain future, to be able to see what's on the horizon, hope and stability and an empire and and, and a new normal that's going to take place. That's leadership. And sure enough, 10 years after that conversation in Council Bluffs, Iowa, uh, on May the 10th in 1869, five years after Abraham Lincoln uh, 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 died, four years rather, was it four years? Yes, he died in 65, did he not? Okay, four years later, sorry, just wanted to check myself before I get emails. Yeah, I read them, most of them. (laughs) I I read your love, okay. (laughs) 
Anyway, this is what happened in Pronmatory, Utah, May the 10th, 1869, when the Central Pacific and the Union Pacific met and the Transcontinental Railroad was done. Wow. Uncertain present, looking for a certain future. Uh, It's a great story. And the reason why I tell you that is because this parable, this parable follows along that same line. You see, this parable was told two days before Jesus Christ would be heaving and hanging on a Roman cross. This parable was told in the midst of an uncertain present as far as the disciples were concerned. Let's say you had 48 hours to live. What message are you going to communicate to your disciples, to your followers, to the people that matter to you, the people that you love? What message of certain hope, what certain future are you going to communicate to the people that you love even in the midst of a very uncertain present. Well, Jesus Christ communicates this message, the parable of the talents. And what he's doing in this parable, he's trying to, he's trying to get his disciples to look beyond the crucifixion, to look beyond the resurrection. They don't even, they don't even really get the idea, the trauma, the angst, the grief that they're going to feel in two days. But Jesus is like, come work with me here. Let's get beyond the crucifixion. Let's get beyond the resurrection. And and there's going to be this in-between period between the time of my resurrection and the time of my return. And I am returning. That's what we've spent six months on this year studying in the book of Revelation, remember? Jesus is returning. And so there's going to be this period of time between the resurrection and the return of Christ when we are given new bodies and there's a new heavens and a new earth. What do we do in this in-between time? What does Jesus expect of his followers, his disciples, between the time of his resurrection and his return? This this in-between time, what's it going to be? This parable informs us of that, the parable of the talents. A parable that talks to us about the resources that Jesus has, the responsibilities that Jesus gives, and the rewards that will come to the faithful servants of Christ. Let's look at each of those key words there. First, excuse me, the resources. That's in verses 14 and 15, right? Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Well, who's the man? Well, Jesus is the man. Jesus is the man in this parable, and he's going on a journey. What's the journey? That's what I'm talking about. That's the period of time between Jesus' resurrection and his return. It's a journey. And when he's on his journey, he entrusts, he gives his slaves a portion of his resources based on their abilities. That's what's behind the word property. He entrusted his property to them. Now, something that you need to just get in your minds about this parable or else it's really not going to mean anything, and it's simply this. As far as Jesus is concerned, 
He's the master, and everything belongs to him. Everything. The New International Version is, is rather kind when it translates the word servants. There's another word that has more bite to it that Americans don't like because of the American experience and the sin of American slavery, but it's the word slave. It's the word slave. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his slaves to them. And there really is a subtle difference between servant and slave. A servant renders service, but a slave belongs to someone. A servant renders service to someone, but a slave belongs to someone. And what Jesus is saying is is that everything and everyone belongs to me. His property. And his property is defined by the word talent. Do you see that there? To one he gave five talents of money. Now that was a monetary unit in the first century. And I don't know if you can see on page 702 in your church Bibles, there in the footnote, maybe other Bibles have this as well, but down at the bottom in the footnote it says, a talent was worth more than a thousand dollars. That is hopelessly understated. Because you see actually the word talent, the word talent was worth 20 years wages. That's one talent. 20 years wages. So take whatever salary you make in a year, multiply by that by 20, that's a talent. So let's say you make $30,000 a year times 20. $600,000 was given to the one talent slave. That's not pocket change, church family. So the one had 600,000, the other had 1.2 million, and the other had 3 million. My goodness, that's a lot of money. And, and remember, it's not equally distributed. It says each according to his ability. So there's a disproportionate assignment of resources. Jesus, who owns everything and everyone, does not bless everyone equally. And, and you know, we know that and just through life experience. We know that some of us are we're just wired differently. We have different gifts and abilities. Some of us are wired to love languages more. Others of us are wired toward the sciences. Some of us are gifted mechanically. Some musically. Some physically. Some have fast twitch muscles. Some have slow twitch muscles. Others have no twitch muscles. Some... Some folks lean, some folks love numbers, other folks love noodles, some like computers, some do freehand, some are gifted leaders, others are very gifted followers, some are good speakers, some are better listeners, some are extroverts, some introverts, some ambiverts. I mean, there is a variety, there's a diversity of gifts and abilities and talents. It's not vanilla, it's not. All different kinds of flavors. And that's what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. So it doesn't do anybody any good to have, you know, gift envy. Oh, I, my life could really make a difference like this person's life if only I only had their gift 
or their ability or their talent or their looks or their this or their that doesn't do anybody any good. Listen, someone said, if God has called you, he has given you what you need to do the job. You may not have all that others have or all you wish you had, but you have what God wants you to have. So the question is, what you going to do with what you got? What are you going to do with what you got? That's the question. Well, we see. We see what two of these servants did, two of these slaves, right? As we move from responsi- uh, resources to responsibilities. Verse 16 says, The man who had received the five talents went at once. At once. Huh? No procrastinating. He went right to work. And he put his money to work and he gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. He went at once and then he put his money to work. What does that mean? Well, it does not mean that he went online and opened an electronic trading account. That doesn't mean that. It means that he, he started a business. That's what that means. That he, he would have gone out to the, uh, to the marketplace, to the agora of the ancient city there and would have started a business. How many of you have been to the farmer's market? Huh? On Saturday mornings, yeah. yeah farmers. Oh, well, okay, put that on steroids, all right? I mean, maybe a 10-acre, you know, campus of land or 20-acre campus of land or... I mean, these servants went out and they, they got... They used the money and they, they had to spend some for some startup and then they just... They opened up shop and they went to work and they put their money to work. And, and they didn't know. They didn't know at the get-go what the outcome was going to be. They just knew they had to do the input, you see? And as it turns out, two of the servants doubled their money. Now, profit is described in this parable in terms of financial gains, but this parable is symbolic of something else. You see, there's a spiritual point behind this parable. And so what is profit in terms of the kingdom of God? What is profit in terms of the kingdom of God? I want to propose that profit in terms of the kingdom of God can be defined by two passages of Scripture. First, the Great Commission. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Great Commission. And then I think we need to tie along with that the Great Commandments. Jesus said in Matthew 22, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I want to propose that Jesus is saying that prophet is using his resources to make disciples who love God and love people. That's prophet. And so individually, that means that God has given me all that I have. God's given me my family. God's given me my marriage. God's given me my work. God has given me the gift of singleness. God has given me my ability to entertain, my ability to play, the ability to eat, the ability to drink. And God wants me to do that in a way that makes Jesus attractive and to do so in a way that makes disciples. And out of the making of those disciples, those disciples will love God and love people. That's what we're talking about here. Does that make sense? So individually, yes, but then corporately, 
Corporately, as a church family, this has ramifications too. And that's why we're, that's why we're having this weekend of service. Listen to me. <laughs> we're not going to make any money doing this weekend of service. We're spending money. We're giving. We're giving that which belongs to God. And we're taking His resources and we're going to use those resources, monetary, gift, talent, and we are going to make a difference to the world outside our... Look, it is healthy for us to gather in these walls to worship and make much of God and to learn His Word. And it is healthy for us to take what we've read and to put it into practice, both individually and as a church family. And so that the people in our community will see that we're serious about what we believe regarding Jesus Christ. This Jesus has changed our lives. And so this is just the inevitable outpouring of a changed life for Christ. And all of this, church family, in a world that is either apathetic or just downright hostile to the rule of Christ. Oh yeah. You know, I've talked with some of you, and some of you tell me that and you are just are so fortunate and blessed because you you are in a work environment that is uh, um, Jesus friendly, and and you you just you have a great boss and and you you start your meetings in prayer, you start your meetings in prayer. We like to do that here. Some of you, some of you work in environments where. Well, they say Jesus' name, but they're not praying. Huh? They're not praying. And they find out you're a Christian, and see, that, that they're going to try to push your buttons. They're going to try to see how authentic you are in terms of your faith. And, and see, this parable is... Remember, there's an uncertain present going on here. Jesus is about ready to be crucified. The disciples are going to be wanted. Now, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to declare openly and publicly your allegiance to someone in a world where that someone, Jesus Christ, is faced with open hostility? You see? Ken Bailey is a Bible teacher a scholar, and he tells about a time that uh, he taught in a seminary in the country of Latvia. And this seminary would review prospective students before allowing them to enter uh, their course of study, and they would ask them a series of interview questions. And um, Ken Bailey said to someone from the interview committee, okay, what's the most important question that you ask a prospective pastor? And Someone from the interview committee said, the most important question that we ask someone who wants to be a pastor is, when were you baptized? Bailey said, why do you ask that question? And the interview person said, because if they were baptized during the era of the Soviet Union, well then we know that they put their life on the line for the gospel. And they're going to be a good pastor. But, if they say that they were baptized after the era of the Soviet Union, well, we just have more questions we want to ask. We have more questions we want to ask. You see? You see? See, that's what this parable is talking about. Uh, um, think of it this way. It's January 1979. The Shah of Iran calls three subjects from the country of Iran into his throne room. 
He gives one subject $500,000, the other $200,000, the other $100,000. He says to these three, fellas, I'm going to go on a little vacation here. I want you to take this money. I want you to go to downtown Tehran, and I want you to open up a business in my name. You'll have a sign that says, His Majesty's Royal Rug Shop, or whatever. Okay? Now, I'm going to go on this vacation, and I do have enemies, and they're going to want to pursue me, and they'll probably want to pursue you too. But I want you to go do this, and no matter what anybody else says, I am coming back, and I am taking over. All right. See ya. What will the servants do once the Shah leaves the country? What are they going to do with those resources? What are they going to do with that money? See, That's what we're talking about here. This parable raises the question, am I willing to take the risk to openly declare myself a loyal slave of Jesus Christ in his absence to a world that is either apathetic or hostile to his reign? What's it going to be? Well, we know the answer for two of them, right? And we know that out of that uncertain present, there was a certain future. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts. He came back. And the man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, check this out. You entrusted me with five. Look, I got five more. And, and, and verse 21, uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And and so also the man with two talents. He doubled his money. And notice verse 23. Take a look there. Look at verse 21 and then look at verse 23. It's verbatim. See, it's verbatim. So you see, Jesus didn't say, why couldn't you make five like the other? No, he didn't do that. He does not expect a five-talent return from a two-talent slave. He doesn't. What he expects is appropriate and proportional. And, the, and they are rewarded. And it's a twofold reward. A twofold reward. The first part of the reward is come and share your master's happiness. Listen, everybody here, work, everybody in this room here works for someone else's approval. You're doing that right now. You're working for someone else's approval. It may even be your own. But you're working for someone else's approval. And what Jesus is telling you is, 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 there's nothing that comes close to my smile. Nothing. And nothing, nothing lasts, nothing is so fulfilling and satisfying as the smile of Jesus. Everything else is cotton candy. Everything else. Everything else is, everything else is cotton candy. You want my smile. And then the second part of the reward is you get more responsibility. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't, don't, don't get any ideas of floating on a cloud with a harp. To, no, no, no. You get more responsibilities. Why would I want that? Hey, we do that all the time. That happens all the time. Every spring during spring training, there's walk-ons and they try to make the team. And those who make the team, what happens? They get the privilege of more work in the fall. You get the smile of Jesus, and you get more responsibility. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come on in. Let's have a party. Well, what did the third servant do? Well, we know. 
Verse 18 says that the one who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, we've read this story, and we know that that's not good. But listen, in the first century, a first century listener would have heard that, and they would have thought, well, yeah, duh. That's what you do. See, that's what you do in an uncertain time. That's what you do when things are unsettled politically or economically. The safest place to put any treasure in an uncertain time, politically and economically, is in the ground. That's just what you do. And so the servant, the slave, just kind of digs it up and brings it back, you see. And he says to the, he says to the master, look, I knew you were a hard man. He starts complaining now, justifying himself, harvesting where you've not sown, gather. You're a tough guy. You don't get out there and sow the seed, but you sure like to reap the profit. And look, you put me in a bad position there, master. I mean, what if I lose the money? You blame me. What if I earn a profit? Who gets the return? So either I get blamed or you get rich. You're hard. You're tough. So I just buried it. Here, this is what belongs to you. The master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. You're wicked. Why wicked? He's wicked because he wouldn't choose a side. That's why. See, he was going to dig that up no matter who came back to be in charge. So he wasn't wasn't going to... Someone else shows up to be king and says, Oh, here, I'm going to... See, he was going to try to... He would not openly and publicly declare he was chicken. He was a coward. The master says, you're wicked and you're lazy. You you should have at least just walked down to the bank to make the deposit. I would have got interest. What's up with that? And then he says, you wicked, lazy slave. See, that you complain reveals that you have forgotten who you are. Because when you complain, and listen up, when we complain with God, we kind of just assume that that we're equals with God. <laughs> and Jesus makes it so clear, we're not equals. I'm the master, and you're the slave. And you have not been faithful. You have not openly declared your allegiance to me. Take what belongs to him and give it to the one who has ten talents. And, and yes, verse 30 is so very hard. It's judgment. Throw that worthless servant outside. But as hard as it may seem to hear that, listen to me. Is an unevaluated life truly worth living? Is it? Are not the degrees that we secure from the universities we attend granted because we have in fact been evaluated? Otherwise, would they really be worth anything at all? Is an unevaluated life worth living? The fact is, Jesus is paying attention. He's paying attention. And what happened to this one talent slave did, did not have to happen at all. It didn't. And you know why, don't you? Because there, it was an uncertain present. Jesus was about ready to go to the cross. He was going to hang and heave on, on the wood. And And he was going to be the one to be thrown outside. 
He was going to be the one treated like he was worthless. He was going to be the one to hang between heaven and hell, a place where there's gnashing and we- gnashing of teeth and weeping. He was going to do that for the one talent man so that having risen from the dead, he could distribute his gifts and abilities to enable us to be faithful servants between his resurrection and his return. That's why Oswald Chambers said, the idea is not that we do work for God, but that we are so loyal to Him that He can do His work through us. Church family, Jesus wants us, Jesus wants me to faithfully manage all that He's entrusted to me with the abilities He's given me. And He wants that of you as well. The question is this, are you going to live for the dot or are you going to live for the line? Randy Alcorn asks that question. Randy Alcorn is an author and he says, everyone here lives for the dot or for the line. From the dot, our present life on earth extends a line that goes on forever, which is eternity in heaven. The dot is brief. The line is forever. The dot begins and ends. The line is eternal. The dot is earth. The line is eternity in heaven. The one talent slave lived for the dot. But two of the slaves lived for the line. And right now, right now, church, we are in the dot. We are. But what are you living for? What are you living for? The short-sighted lives in the dot. But those with perspective, those with eternity in view, those looking toward that certain future, they're going to live for the line. Church family, live for the line.